today's passage comes from Judges 13 and through like excerpts of Judges 13, 14, and 16. Right? Get that right? Okay. Um, and I'm Addie, I'm a sophomore. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah and the tribes of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson went to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all your people, that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. (laughs) His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And at that time, Philistines ruled over Israel. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the Lord of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she was bound, she bound him with them. Now she had men lying ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to them, "The Philistines are upon you." Said to him, "The Philistines are upon you, Samson." But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. And she said to him, "How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have told me where your great strength lies." When she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me. So I become weak like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the Lord of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And she called a man that had and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. She began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times brought him and shake myself free. But he did not know what the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And the ground at the hill and he ground at the mill in a prison. But the hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaved. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. 
Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there, and on their roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And his left hand on the other, and Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed. Oh, wow, I skipped a whole line. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the left, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Thank you for bearing with me. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pray um, for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the time um, and the passage, Lord, your words to us. And I thank you for all of the people here that have taken this precious time out of their nights, um, including Sid, um, to be here and that we may all love you and grow um, in you and listen to you. And Lord, I want to especially pray tonight for Catholic Campus Ministries as our brothers and sisters in you, Lord, and the work that they do and the people that they touch on this campus. Um, please be with them and uh, let them continue to prosper and just have a profound impact upon the campus. And Lord, I also want to pray for um, Las Vegas, Lord, and everybody affected by the recent shootings. Uh, Lord, please just be with those people and everybody that was affected. Um, please let us uh, come together in solidarity and um, support them and, and to feel their pain um, and that somehow that your hand may be felt in all of this. And so tonight, Lord, please just bless these words and um, our, let our hearts and uh, minds be open to you. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. <laughs> I gotta get out of this maze, sorry. How are we doing? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so convincing, you all. Um, so, question is this week midterm week or is next week midterm week? Officially. No, 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 no. Both doesn't count. We're voting, we're putting it to a vote. <laughs> so, we deal? Use my Sam's like strength. Um, is that just? Is that okay? Game on. Okay. So we're voting. Is it this week for midterm weeks or next week? Ready? This week. Okay. So next week. Ah, it's this week. I'm sorry. Next week, people. Your stress and your angst does not count. It doesn't count. So don't cry to me next week. Just kidding. Um, so. Anyway, those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm not so callous as you think. My name is Sid Druin, and I'm the campus minister with the Reformed University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus, but also you all, wherever and however you are. And really what we mean that by that is just basically saying this isn't for one kind of person. This isn't for one kind of scene on campus. This isn't for one kind of personal background or just a few kinds of personal backgrounds. This is for anybody. Um, and really, our hope is that it's for anybody, even no matter where you are with Jesus or Christianity. Like, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, um, or maybe those terms annoy you and you'd say all of the above, none of the above, somewhere in between. 
We're just really glad you're here, and uh, I'm especially appreciative of you all coming this time of year. I know it's a tough time of year. Um, and I just did, um, we're going to start doing this. I just wanted to make sure to welcome before the rush at the end to the snacks, of course, but also to other things. Um, uh, Seth in the back uh, is with Life Fellowship, and so uh, make sure to say hello to him if you can. I also wanted to especially welcome people who are new. This is your first time. Maybe you've only been here one or two other times. Thanks again, especially the timing. I really do appreciate that. Okay, so this semester in large group, we've been looking at the books of Judges and the book of Ruth. Uh, actually, we will start looking at the book of Ruth. This is our last Judges uh, time. Next, next after fall break, two weeks from now, we will start talking about um, the book of Ruth. And really, the series that I've been calling, that we've been doing, I've been calling it uh, Love in an R-Rated World. Love in an R-Rated World. Um, and basically, the books of Judges and Ruth, I would argue, are definitely R-rated. Uh, maybe TV mature, depending on your, your format. But so far this semester, this is my case, in Judges, we've read about a knife to the belly fat resulting in post-mortem poop. We've read about a tent peg pounded through a would-be seducer's skull. We've read about a damp, then dry lambskin rug and an army of 300 people who drink like dogs. We've read about a thug who accidentally but sacrificially kills his own daughter. And this week, Samson, best of all, save the best for last, a serial sex addict okay, who tears apart lions with his bare hands, sets 300 foxes on fire in a wheat field, kills 1,000 men with a, jon- a donkey jawbone. Gosh, and in our passage tonight is tortured, blinded, and literally brings the house down on himself and everybody else. I mean, you might be asking, that's our first impression of Judges. At first blush, chaos, blood, gore, violence, sex, and just weirdness. Okay? And so you might be asking, why is that kind of stuff in books like Judges and Ruth and in the Bible in general. And I'm going to argue, and I've been arguing the whole semester, that they are there, these episodes are there because the Bible, like it or not, reflects the real world. And the real world has things like it or not, like the dark web, mass shooters, natural disasters, a world in which our personal histories even are littered with the shocking, the sensual, and the strange. But the Bible, and specifically Judges and Ruth, also offer this interesting and hopeful solution for our very real world. God's love, a love that sort of finds its focus and its footing in Jesus of Nazareth. And from Judges and Ruth, we see that Jesus' love is gory and messy and awkward because it's doing business with, it's mending, it's taking ownership of and transforming the gory, messy, and awkward world we live in. And hopefully, the go- us uh, who are gory, messy, and awkward sometimes. But before we look one last time at the book of Judges and the already world of the book of Judges, um, would you pray with me and for me again? <clears throat> Father, I do pray that you would be with this time, that you would use it. Um, it is, some people are just spent. Uh, some people are excited. Um, some people are stressed. Some people are pretending to be stressed. Some people um, just don't know what to do with passages like this, and some people are excited to hear what you do with it. And I pray that you would show up. I pray that, Jesus, you would be more believable, more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, 
that you would make the meditations of our mouths and, the, and of our hearts pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I pray that you would meet us exactly where we are, exactly uh, where we're thinking, and that you would both challenge and comfort us. I pray, Father, that you would not leave us the same as when we enter this room, that you'd help us to sort all of the things that we brought into this room before you, and that you, oh Jesus, would be high and lifted up and you'd get me out of the way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Can you remember a time uh, when you realized that you had a story just completely wrong? <laughs> you know, like, it's actually about something or someone else entirely. For instance, like that moment, and hopefully this happened to you, when you found out that Darth Vader <laughs> was Leia and Luke Skywalker's dad. <laughs> and then you thought about all the romantic moments in episode four, and you went, was that borderline incest? <laughs> Ah. <laughs> or another classic movie, The Truman Show, where Jim Carrey's character all of a sudden starts to, un- to unpack this puzzle that he's like actually in a reality television show, and his friends and his family are actors, and his neighborhood's a Hollywood set, and he finds his way slowly but surely into a control room with all these television monitors trained on his most intimate moments and intimate spaces all complete with a director, played by Ed Burns, who plays every director in every movie. I think we also actually, though, have these moments in our real lives, too. That's my contention. And maybe you're actually having that moment this week. It could be as minor as your iPhone glitching. You know, there you are, swiping away at reality, hot or not, boring or cute, like or poke, follow or unfollow. Um, and... And then all of a sudden your phone stalls out and you're like totally feel like you're out of control. You can't curate your handheld reality anymore. <laughs> Last night my iPhone automatically updated and this morning I was like in a panic. I was like, oh my gosh, my life. Um, <laughs> and then my, yeah, anyway. <laughs> it could be like as mid-major as this week. It's go time, it's get or done or else time, and you just can't seem to get the guilt and the shame and the fear kicking. You can't seem to get that last push to get you into the basement of the library in a carol so you can see nobody and study. Or it could be something extremely major, a family blow-up or a family separation that's slowly but surely tearing things apart, a breakup, or a wish that you could actually have someone just to break up with an in-your-face failure, and the world seems like it's helpless and it's hopeless and it's like a little bit out of control. In May of 2005 at Kenyon College and on the equivalent of their chamber's lawn, the author David Foster Wallace described a moment of story slippage, kind of what we're talking about. The curtains are pulled back on reality and those moments when something should actually, uh, that kind of just totally distorts things, and it's something he says that we should actually embrace. And not only embrace, but actually pursue. According to David Foster Wallace, who's a famous writer and author, the liberal arts education, he's talking about what we're doing, why we're stressed out with midterms, what all this is for, is actually teaching you how to think. And he quickly clarifies, not just teaching you how to think, but teaching you how to think really means Think he's teaching you how to think about the choice. It's the choice about what to think about. What do we think about and why? Wallace further describes this choice of what to think about by giving the chief takeaway. 
to have just a little critical awareness about myself and my certainties. Because a huge percentage of the stuff I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and diluted. Here's one example of the total wrongness of something, this is while speaking, I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and most important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting. It's hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you, behind you, to the left or to the right of you, on your TV or on your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts, other people's feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own thoughts and feelings are so immediate, so urgent, and so real. So essentially, when our iPhone glitches, when we lose motivation to be busy, when we experience something personally jarring, David Foster Wallace, by no means a self-described Christian, Wallace is suggesting that these kind of moments challenge our default setting, the hardwired into our boards at birth. And really, confirmed by the experience of our senses, that assumption that life is all about me and all about my desires and all about my meaning. Look, I really, I get this personally. Life feels like a first person story about me. But what if it's actually a third person narrative? And I'm not even the main character or a major protagonist. Look, what I do is important, but what if it's not ultimate? And while I, can, while I feel like initially that feels like really stinging and crushing, I think Wallace and, and I would argue that it actually is relieving and freeing. <laughs> and the reason uh, that I have and will reference multiple movies and multiple storylines and authors and artists is because I think Judges chapters 13 through 16, the story of Samson, are actually an artfully told true story. And really, the, one of the takeaways of this section of scripture is that it's a story about all other stories. The stories that are outside of us, that we see, that we listen to, that we read, and the stories that we tell ourselves in our minds about our lives. So in Judges chapter 14, verse 4, we read God is behind the scenes. He is somehow working in Samson's, in the midst of a very difficult situation. He's working in the midst of Samson's objectification of a Philistine woman in a village that he sees only as a marriage meat market. Samson thinks he is the major protagonist. Verse 3, she is right in my eyes. Samson thinks he's the main character of life. His desires and judgments come first, but God is telling us, the readers, psst, over here. Samson's story is ultimately about God. It was from God, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Verse 4. And only at the end of chapter 16, through the pursuing of his own desires to their bitter, self-destructive end, does Samson actually catch up with the Bible's readers. And he realizes that God's at the center. Samson's lives and our lives are not ultimately stories about the good deeds we do. They're not ultimately hero stories. 
Our lives are not ultimately about the bad deeds done to us. They're not ultimately victim stories. They are about God's good deeds done to deliver us from the bad deeds done to us and by us. Life is a rescue story. It's a rescue story. So in a sentence, that's all very complicated. I'm going to put it in a sentence. We see the story behind our stories is about God as we recognize the hero behind Samson's heroics and his brutality and victimization. For that, too, is God. So we realize that the story behind our story is about God as we realize and look at this passage and see that Samson, in the midst of his heroism, in the midst of his brutality, in the midst of his victimization, that God is the hero even over those things. Does that make sense? And that, again, that truth stings. I get it. It stings at first, but then it frees us to go and to live more purposefully. Okay, chapters 13 through 16 invite us to understand Samson in two distinct ways. You can find this outline, by the way, in the bottom of your handout. So I'll do it pretty quickly. First, we'll view Samson as an ordinary human being like us. And we're going to see this and we'll study this in chapter 13, verse 1, chapters 14, 1 through 4, and chapter 16, verses 4 through 22. Then second, we're going to look at Samson as an extraordinary human being like Jesus. To do this, we're going to study chapters 13, 2 through 5, and then the final section of chapter 16, verses 25 through 30. And as usual, we're going to do what we usually do, which is begin where the passage begins, chapter 13, verse 1, with Samson as an ordinary human being. Look, by now, this verse should be, if you've been with us at large group at all, it's just totally almost predictable, right? Verse 1, And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The evil Israel did in the sight of the Lord is not simply bad behavior. That's super important. The evil they did is not even a dirty habit. Nor was, it the, nor was the evil like this idea of a forbidden pleasure that that old curmudgeon in the sky keeps away from us. It was a worship issue. It was a worship issue. Ancient Israel was worshiping other gods. And again, in this case, we don't know which exact gods are unspecified. But look, I think the temptation in this room when we read passages like this, about a 3,000-year-old book, is to ask ourselves, um, well, they didn't have science. We explained everything through worship and religion. But I really want you to listen to the way that David Foster Wallace completes his thought about liberal arts education and choosing what to think about. He says this, this I submit is the freedom of a real education, of learning how to be well adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. (laughs) If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. 
Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know all of this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, and parables. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need even more power over those others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. Look, again, remember, David Foster Wallace is not a self-described Christian. He would not call himself a Christian. Nor was this speech delivered in a church. It was at a Kenyan graduation commencement. Wallace was just trying to be honest about education, about his life, and about all the th- and about adulthood, adulting. Okay? And in fact, what you probably don't know is that most of Wallace's life and work was consumed with intellectual rivalry. He was plagued by his worship of the God of intellect. And sadly, David Foster Wallace's desire to be seen as smart ate him alive. Less than three years after he delivers this commencement address, he couldn't live with the feeling of stupidity, of being a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And so David Foster Wallace actually committed suicide in 2008 at the age of 46. Okay, that's heavy. We're going to shift back to the passage. That was, the whole point of that was to say that we worship, okay, and that, that the Israelites' problem 3,000 years ago is still a problem for the modern day, even with science and technology. Okay, shifting back to our passage tonight, you'll see that Israel is described as day after day getting more and more selective about what they see and how they measure value without ever being fully aware that's what they're doing, right? In the book of Judges' words, each Israelite was busy doing whatever was right in their own eyes, okay? They're busy doing whatever was right in their own eyes. This was so much the case that Israel doesn't see the Philistine 40 years rule as oppressive at all. For the first time in the book of Judges, they don't see the oppressor as oppressive and they do not cry out to the Lord at all. They are comfortably numb. They don't ask for deliverance. They have lost the feeling of feeling. And in fact, chapter 15, a passage in a passage I didn't include in our handout, the Israelite tribe of Judah binds Samson their deliverer and gives him over to their oppressor, the Philistines, in order just to keep the peace. Crazy. But really, Samson is this last and worst of all the judges. It's just like the people he's trying to deliver, right? Our first glimpse of Samson in chapter 14 is shocking, even for the book of Judges standards. Just after the end of chapter 13, when the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, we come upon him in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14. We find Samson doing the opposite of rescuing others. He sees a tree that's good for food and a delight to the eyes, and he wants it right now. So he treats a human being like food. He objectifies this purposefully unnamed woman, and unthinkingly he asks her to marry, he asks his parents to marry him to this oppressor. 
this person who represents the oppression, in order to consummate the relationship. He has seen her. He does not know her. He just wants her. Okay? And then his all-too-permissive parents push back on Samson and say, hey, maybe you're being a little hasty, a little troubling. And Samson says, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. Samson is curved in on himself. He is worshiping his sexuality. And it only gets worse. The after this of verse of chapter 16, verse 4, refers to a series of things I had to skip over. Sexual escapades with all sorts of Philistine women and all leading to horrifying, horrific, escalating violence via foxes set on fire, donkey jawbones crushing human skulls, and incredible Hulk-ish feats of strength, like lifting whole buildings and throwing them on people. It's crazy, okay? And Samson gets more and more, the point is Samson gets more and more brutish. He gets more and more selfish. He gets more and more sadistic. Then in chapter 16, verse 5, Samson meets his match, a woman named Delilah, the only woman Samson ever loved. I like to picture the meeting, uh, this meeting as similar to when Ron Burgundy, played by Will Ferrell, first met Veronica Cornerstone, played by Christina Applegate, in the, in the iconic movie, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Okay. Uh, Samson and Ron share a lot of self-concerns together. Uh, Ron Burgundy in their first meeting says, I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. And Victoria Cornerstone distractingly sighs, really? And Ron Burgundy says, people know me. And Veronica says, well, I'm very happy for you. And Ron Burgundy reaches deep inside and pulls out this fine diamond. I'm very important. I have many leather-bound books and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> I love that one. Um, somehow, like, that kind of muscle flexing works for Samson, and he gets to Delilah, or maybe the, the Philistines' promise of oodles and oodles of money gets to her. In verse 5, the Philistines promise 5,500 shekels or pieces of silver total. Five of them pr- promise 1,100 each. Okay, in today's terms, the, a rough calculation would be 16752450 dollars. That's how much they're offering for Samson. Okay, almost 17 million dollars. So she's intrigued. Okay, so like chapters 14 and 15, verses six through 14 of chapter 16 shows Samson going hard after what he wants. He's what's right in his own eyes, Delilah. Whatever intimacy, whether it was physical, or whether it was emotional connection or both, Samson looks for this love. He falls for this love. And again, maybe it's not necessarily a bad intimacy in and of itself, but he looks for and he falls in love with the very wrong person. Delilah is no good for Samson. She loves and worships money. He loves and worships Delilah. But notice what Samson relies on to get what he wants, how he wants it. He relies on his incredible Nazarene strength, his one widely recognized talent. Anyone could say he was a strong man. Okay? In verses 8 through 9, Delilah tells him, uh, he tells Delilah to tie him with seven fresh bowstrings, and she does it, and she sets a Philistine ambush. But Samson's strength snaps all of these 
all these bowstrings like flax to fire, verse 9. The same pattern holds for some verses that we skipped in our handout. Okay, Delilah tries new ropes, verse 12. She tries tying Samson's hair in braids, verse 14. And Samson's strength succeeds again and again and again, every time in getting Delilah on his own terms. In this case, not bound or gagged or killed by the Philistines. That's his own terms at that point. Okay, Samson is doing what works, what feels good, and he's good at it. He's getting Delilah the way he wants Delilah until what he wants, Delilah, demands more than his strength can bear. A shaved head. She demands to shave his head. And so verses 15 through 22 chronicle how Samson loses control, becomes helpless and hopeless, tortured by Delilah, then the Philistines. His, his eyes are carved out of his skull. He is bound to a millstone like the least human being, like a beast of burden. The, John, the poet John Milton actually says of Samson, O mirror of our fickle state. He calls Samson a mirror of our fickle state. And look, so whether this is like Samson's success or his failure, Samson's life is meant to show us in some way, shape, or form who we are, what we do, what we're after, and how we go after it. And like, look, maybe that mirror feels like a funny mirror, like a county fair funny mirror, like it would distort your size and shape. Or maybe it feels like a vanity mirror that magnifies all the places that we meticulously touch up on our faces. Regardless, Samson helps us to think about what we're after and how we use our strength to get it, to get him, to get her, to perform or pretend for someone's very conditional affection. For instance, I'm going to finish a story I started two weeks ago. So I don't even remember this. Some of you do, some of you don't. I sent a late night email to a girl named Emily. I declared my love for her with my whole freshman Davidson heart and soul uh, over a winter break, and she did not respond ever, ever. Okay, still to this day, she's not emailed me back. <laughs> Can't believe it. Um, so after that, my dating life at Davidson became an exercise of doing the kind of emotional and social and sometimes physical things that were reserved for romantic relationships. But I kind of did them um, on my own terms and doing all these things by saying we were just friends. Okay? So we'd stay up all hours of the night talking about deep personal secrets in the lounge or I'd take a girl to a favorite spot and we'd play a favorite song under the stars. Or that, and then I'd pull back and remind her and everyone else who was watching, we're just friends. <laughs> we're just friends. <laughs> Unless, of course, I was absolutely certain she was interested. And even then, I'd suggest all these non-dates, dates, right? Coffee. Let's grab coffee. Let's study together. And I'd run that play until I forced to discuss the relationship, a moment with forced mutual vulnerability. And so I knew exactly where I stood with her, right? This is how that worked. And look, I'm not proud of any of that. I really don't want to admit this in front of my wife or my sister-in-law, for that matter. But I wouldn't say it was a conscious decision, but I did do it. And it is an example of how I looked for intimacy, for a deep knowing, for a deep being known. Again, good things, good desires. But I used my strength to get it on my own terms without potentially getting hurt. I used my ability with words to never get rejected again. 
And I used this strength until I watched a girl crumble under the weight of this false intimacy. And in the words of Bon Iver, and at once I knew I was not magnificent. <laughs> and so in our second and final point, we see Samson at that point, the point where he knows he's actually not magnificent too. Samson is blinded, he's shuffled out in chains, and he's struck and he's tripped for the Philistines' drunken entertainment in, ch- in verse 25 of chapter 16. And it's out of this humility bordering on humiliation that Samson does something he's only done one other time in his entire life. He prays. He cries out to God. Samson calls out to God as Lord, God's most personal and most magnificent name. And he asks the Lord, not Delilah, not other people, men or women. He asks the Lord, and he only asks that he would be remembered. He feels so very forgettable at that moment. Then Samson asks for something that he has never even thought to ask for for so many years, that he's been granted by God's presence for so many years. He asks for strength. For the entire story up to this point, Samson assumed that his strength was his own to do with as he pleased. But now he doesn't have it. Yes, his hair is growing back, but Samson had broken other Nazarite vows along the way, right? He drank wine at a wedding. He touched unclean dead animals twice, first a lion, then a donkey. (laughs) You see, Samson's strength wasn't an avowed right. It was a gift that God gave Samson. And Samson's strength existed to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, not to seduce Philistine women and fight off the consequences of those seductions. And in verse 28, the blinded Samson finally sees. He finally gets it. He needs rescue. As much in his weakness as in his strength. He needs rescue as much as when he's the victim as when he was the victimizer. Samson prays because he realizes that his story is a story about God. God is the hero. God is the rescuer. In his story and our story... And you know what? God answers Samson's prayer because God is not like us. We would not answer that prayer. I wouldn't. God doesn't value strength over weakness. And God's willing to honor one unselfish moment over thousands upon thousands of selfish moments. And verses 29 through 30 tell us how God answers Samson's prayer, right? Samson grasps the two middle pillars, he twists, the house falls down, okay? And he has this sort of dying breath, let me die with the Philistines. The house goes down and falls on the people that are in it, and they're all dead. And there were more people killed in his death than his entire life. He accomplished more by that one prayer than he accomplished his entire life by all of his strength. And so Samson, by his self-sacrificial death, begins to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The prophecy, the promise of the angel of the Lord to his mom in chapter 13, verse 5. And the connection between this extraordinary man, Samson, and the extraordinary man, Jesus, is made perfectly clear. If Samson is a mirror to us, Samson is a window for us to Jesus. Jesus, who, like Samson, was born a miracle, 
but Jesus' miracle was even greater. Samson's Mary's mom, Mary, Jesus' mom, wasn't just infertile like Samson's mom. She had never sexually known a man. She's a virgin. Jesus, who, like Samson, had a life's strength and promise and mission of an angel, but Jesus was unlike Samson and that he wouldn't use his Holy Spirit-inspired strength on himself. Instead of destroying and killing people, Jesus healed and resurrected people. Jesus, like Samson, was betrayed by someone close to him. He was bound. He was handed over to a foreign occupying force. Jesus was further mocked even more than Samson because he died like a criminal on a cross. He didn't have an anti-hero 3,000-plus vigilante moment like Samson did. But look, Jesus' death didn't just begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Jesus' death finished what Samson's death started. It saved every people group on the planet. First, from spiritual oppression, the special, the, the special kind of oppression of like, of our own self-importance, of our own self-sufficiency, from working for, he's saving us from working for conditional acceptance and affection in order to rest in unconditional love. But Jesus' death soon enough will also even end the physical oppression of madmen and natural disasters. God promises a place without tears. He promises a place without gates and without locks. He promises a place without seas and without storms. So like David Foster Wallace, there's an author, and his name is Will Campbell, and he wrote about the purpose of education, what it means to be an adult, and his own life. But instead of a speech, Will Campbell wrote a memoir, and it's called Brother to a Dragonfly. Brother to a Dragonfly. And in his memoir, Campbell recounts his personal experience fighting for racial integration in Mississippi in the 1960s. Okay, so one evening, there's this agnostic newspaper editor, a renegade newspaper editor named P.D. East. Okay, P.D. East comes upon Campbell, and he realizes that Campbell's a Christian who's fighting for desegregation, but he's fighting against other Christians who are fighting to keep segregation. And P.D. East confronts Campbell in a car ride and says, what the heck? What's this Christianity thing about anyway? Give me 10 words of less what the Christian message is about. And Campbell, in a car, says this, and I'm using this word intentionally. We're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. We're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. What Campbell didn't realize is that P.D. East was born illegitimate. That East was indeed actually called a bastard most of his life. And so Campbell's answer affected him deeply. But several days later, P.D. East would affect Campbell deeply. An Alabama deputy sheriff named Thomas Coleman gunned down Will Campbell's 26-year-old friend and fellow segregation protester, Jonathan Daniels. In the midst of Campbell's grief, P.D. East was relentless. He would not leave Will Campbell alone. Even on the evening when he heard the news, P.D. East asked Campbell, was your friend Jonathan Daniels, the guy who was murdered, was he a bastard? And after a pause, Campbell said, yes, Jonathan, now dead, was still a bastard. After all, Jonathan was a sinner, and he was bent and curved in on himself, so Campbell reasoned. Then P.D. East asked, is Thomas and Coleman, 
the man who shot Jonathan was, is he a bastard? And Campbell enthusiastically said, you bet that murderer was a bastard. And then P.D. East pulled his chair close. He put his bony hand on the knee of Campbell, looked directly in his tear-stained face, and asked this question. Which one of those two bastards do you think God loves the most? Which one of those two bastards do you think God loves the most? That question changed the entire course of Will's life. Changed his career, changed what he was doing. And he decided that the free offer of grace extends not just to the undeserving, but to those who in fact deserve the opposite. To Ku Klux Klaners, as well as civil rights marchers. To the murderer Thomas Coleman, as well as to the murderer Jonathan Daniels. A friend of mine put it this way. The life of Samson, the book of Judges, the Bible. They teach us that God's main business is not providing favors for people who are good enough. It's not about providing favors for people who are good enough. At the heart of life, written in the very spine of reality, is a story of rescue. God rescues people who are needy. God rescues people who are bad, who are insecure, who are full of themselves, and who've had enough of it, and who cry out for help. Christianity is not a standing room only honor society held in chambers or baker. Christianity is a soft chair somewhere in the student health center or maybe the oasis or God forbid the sprinkle room. Anyone's welcome. Anyone can be healed. Anyone could be a welcomer. Anyone could hold another shaky person's hand or ask a stinging but freeing question. Samson's life, my life, many of your lives prove that fact. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for pushing us. Uh, Thank you for challenging and comforting us simultaneously. Thank you for these words. And I pray that you would use them. Use them to your glory, but use them to our good as well. I pray that you would help us to take them seriously, that they would be... um, Interrupting in a good way. Thank you so much for the way that you intrude, but that you intrude to give us freedom and you intrude to give us relief. And I pray that these words would do that, that they would free us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.